0: All right, well, we're starting a new series. So we're going to move into Bible study now. We study the Bible every week. We open it up because we believe that the the Bible speaks to us with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. So we're starting this new series in Proverbs. So that's in the middle of your Bible. You can turn to page five, I think it's 527. Yeah, 527. The Book of Proverbs, we'll be doing a summer series. I'm still not sure if we're going to keep it going through the fall. We'll just see how we're going, okay? Uh, But for sure this summer, we're going to be in Proverbs. And it's also Juneteenth. Anybody know Juneteenth, the holiday? Today is also Juneteenth. And there's actually a significant, I think, conceptual connection between Juneteenth and the Book of Proverbs. And, and, And here it is. I was just talking this week as we were doing Impact, talking to our youth director, Steve, about this. Terrell, one of our leaders, was teaching the youth during the week. Juneteenth is this crazy story where Abraham Lincoln gave legal freedom to slaves at one point, I think it was January of that year, and it wasn't until June 19th, Juneteenth today, that a general actually announced the freedom on the shores of Texas in Galveston. So there was this gap between legal freedom an actual announcement of the freedom. And we experience that same kind of thing in our spiritual life. We can have freedom in Christ, but not fully understand or fully get the depths of that freedom that we've been granted. Freedom from slavery to sin, freedom from the power and the presence of sin, freedom from guilt, we're restored to a full relationship with Jesus. Well, how does that relate to Proverbs? Well, in the Old Testament, God's people were slaves in Egypt and he literally set them free. He set them free, but then there was this gap of having to learn how to live as free people, and Proverbs is part of the sacred literature whereby God was teaching his children to live as free sons and daughters of the kingdom, and we're still learning that today. We have freedom in Christ, but we still have to learn how to live in that freedom, and so we're going to learn a lot of great stuff in the book of Proverbs. Um, We've given the subtitle to the series, Scandalous Wisdom, Scandalous Wisdom. And so why do we call it scandalous wisdom as we study Proverbs? Well, more and more, we're in this uh, place in culture where to follow Jesus and to obey what he says in his word is offensive. It's scandalous in our culture. That word in the Bible, offense or scandal, literally means like a tripping stone, something you might fall over. And I'm ashamed to say when I was uh, 10 years old, me and my friends used to build tree forts in the woods and we would also sometimes set up tripping wires. So if we have any little boys in the room, please talk to your parents about this before you try to implement my idea. Um, it was a bad idea. I repent. But it's to give you a visual, right? We would protect our tree forts from bad guys. I, I don't know why a bad guy would want our tree fort. But anyway, we would we'd protect our tree forts by setting up these trip wires. And so we'd, we'd then bring our friends because no bad guys ever attack. So we'd bring our friends and we'd be like, hey guys, come into the woods with us. And we'd run and we'd step over the wire And then our friends would hit the wire and they'd fall over, right? That's literally what a scandal is. The Greek word is scandalon, And we see this again in in scripture. There are real terrible offenses, real tripping wires that are bad. But often Jesus would say he was actually a scandal as well. He would trip people up. He would offend people. He wasn't what people expected. And that's the same kind of thing we're gonna see in Proverbs. As we learn to actually walk With God and obey his wisdom, we're going to freak some people out. I just want to clarify that even as our culture grows more and more at odds with biblical wisdom, we're going to continue to pray that God would give us uh, the opportunity to be gracious and kind in how we walk with Jesus. But we also just have to know sometimes we're going to freak people out. Sometimes people are going to see us obeying God Instead of uh, obeying our our inner self, and they're going to be offended by that. And that's okay, because as we see in Proverbs, God is bigger and greater and more wonderful than anything else that could make us feel secure in this culture. So, scandalous wisdom. Uh, We're going to open this up with the introduction to the book. We're going to introduce the book with a built in introduction, chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. The way it's written is is with this little introduction that kind of helps us to understand what. The book is about. So we're going to be in Proverbs 1, 1 through 7, as we grapple with this idea of scandalous wisdom. The scandalous idea that someone outside of ourself, namely God, gets to tell us how to live. That's that's really the ultimate scandal here. Okay? Chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive It's kind of the summary for the whole thing. So let me reread that one verse, okay? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So the ultimate scandal here is that we would listen to somebody besides ourselves. right? That's, that's kind of my thesis. The, the big scandal is we would listen to God instead of listening to ourself. Um, but even more than just listening, we actually need him relationally. We need his spirit to help us to listen, help us to hear. So I'm gonna pray that a spirit would meet with us as we study the word. God, will you meet with us? Will you help us? Uh, We see that you're gracious because you sent Jesus for us. And so we pray now that you would send your spirit, that as we look at the text and as we wrestle with what it says, that your spirit would open up our, our minds and our hearts, that you would conform us and shape us to be more like Jesus, who is the embodiment of ultimate wisdom. Teach us, we pray. Meet with us. Give us your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So scandalous wisdom, that's the big idea. And as we look through this introduction, as I said, it's kind of got a built-in introduction here in the text, uh, three big ideas we're going to see. We have three big ideas. I'm trying to set my timer. I went a little long earlier. I'm not just surfing the internet here. I think the microphone on my face is making it not work. Okay. So setting that, so we'll try to keep it under two hours. Okay. So here's the outline of scandalous wisdom. Uh, Number one, we see the scandalous messenger of wisdom, the scandalous messenger, okay? There's a little bit of a fractal we have there, and I'll I'll save that until I get to that point. So scandalous messenger of wisdom. Number two, the scandalous challenge of wisdom. What is wisdom actually calling us towards? What's the challenge? The scandalous challenge of wisdom. Number three, the scandalous fuel of wisdom. That's the kind of big idea of, of the fear of the Lord. It's a crazy idea. We don't fully understand that. I don't think we're going to fully understand it even after today, but we're going to start to understand it, okay? So scandalous messenger, scandalous challenge, and scandalous fuel. Number one, we've got the scandalous messenger of wisdom. And just starting off with verse one, we've got uh, chapter one, verse one, the scandalous messenger of wisdom. Uh, This is a fractal in the sense of kind of concentric circles. So we've got the messenger of the Proverbs themselves, and then we've got the editor of Solomon. Solomon's one editing this, and then it kind of moves out from there. So let's start with Proverbs. What are Proverbs. What does this even mean? Uh, at its simplest level, it's just like a little tidbit of wisdom, you know, like a like a fortune cookie saying, a coffee mug saying, a bumper sticker phrase. They're memorable phrases that help us to understand the truth. That's just the simplest kind of baby understanding what proverbs are. What we'll see is we actually study the proverbs. Is it's really bigger than that? They're whole poems and essays and, you know, it's extensive kind of little sermons. So it's not just the little short phrases. And we see this in even the way the book is constructed. The first nine chapters of Proverbs, they're longer essays, longer poetry. And then after that, chapter 10, you get into more of the little just rapid fire statements, right? So most of us, when we think of Proverbs, we think of just the one verse, two verse statements. There's a lot of that, but they're also long extended kind of cohesive arguments. And poetry. And that's where we're going to be in the first nine chapters. Even these first seven verses is that kind of thing. It's like kind of like a, a summary of a main idea. They're broken into little pieces, uh, kind of like sermons, kind of like poetry, very similar to, to rap music, right? Little memorable phrases, but kind of this coherent um, whole of what they're trying to communicate. And so the first scandalous thing we see is the scandalous messenger of God chooses to speak through something very simple Vulgar and human like Proverbs. This is a very human thing. This is a common way that people communicated wisdom in the ancient Middle East. And we get this completely backwards. What happens a lot of times is scholars study this book and then they start finding these instances of the exact same kind of writing in the ancient world, right? They study covenants and then they realize oh, covenants existed outside of the Bible. Yeah, they did and Proverbs. Oh, there are all these Proverbs in Egypt that look just like Solomon's Proverbs. Yeah. What does that tell us? That tells us that God enters into our culture and our world, and he speaks our language. That's scandalous. You, you see, guys, when God says he's a father, it's Father's Day, that doesn't mean God like, is wandering around the world going, hmm, what can I find to communicate who I am? No, God created fatherhood, right? Because he is a father. And in the same way, there are all these things that exist in the world. All truth belongs to God. And God lowers himself to speak in ways that we understand. He's willing to communicate in in vulgar, simple, childish, baby ways. And Proverbs is part of that. But as we'll see in the next point, it's not not just for babies. It's also for the advanced. It's also for those who are already wise. So Ray Ortland says, a proverb itself is like a little model of reality. He uses uh, the illustration of the Wright brothers when they first had the, you know, the first successful flight. They already kind of knew it was going to work because they built a model and they'd, they'd put it in a little wind tunnel. And so even, even the word proverb comes from a verb that means to, you know, explain or to communicate something. And he's saying, so what a proverb is, is it's this little, this little miniature construction of reality, a little model of what works in real life. So as we learn the proverbs, we're going to give we're going to get a little junior window into how the world works, and we're going to grow in wisdom and grow in understanding. The other thing that I think is important to understand is, I mentioned this already, there were Egyptian proverbs that are almost identical to some of the proverbs we have here, and in many other cultures as well. And so the idea is, we look at what Solomon did, and as we look at how the world works, the idea is that Solomon actually read some other pagan proverbs, right? Like He, he found some people that had said some wise things, And Solomon said, oh, that's true. And as an official messenger of God, then it gets edited and put in our book. And we would say that this book is like the Supreme Court of what's true and what's not true. And so we have biblical proverbs that are kind of the final word on wisdom. But we, like Solomon, can engage in reading things from pagan authors, scientists, people that are made in the image of God. And so they discover true things about the world. Solomon did this too. Solomon observed nature. He observed the observations of other wise sages, and he collected that, and he boiled it down for us. And so we would say scripture is like the final word on what is true, but we can also read things and learn things from the world. Actually, Proverbs will tell us, hey, go to the ant, you sluggard, right? Like, go observe nature and go learn from other wise people. Learn from your parents. You know what? Some of you have pagan parents, God tells you to learn from them anyway, right? Like we, we have a lot we can learn from other people and from nature. And that's, that's kind of built in. That's part of the scandal of Proverbs itself is we, we always have a lot to learn. God's the ultimate standard and his word is the ultimate standard. But we always have a lot we can learn from other people and other places. We see that embodied in Solomon. And this brings us to one more scandal the scandal of the messenger Solomon as the final editor and the author of most of the material we have here. Why is it a scandal? Anybody know about the life of Solomon? Some of you know about him if you've read the Bible. Um, He engaged in some bad stuff, okay? And this helps us to understand Solomon is a great case study because Solomon is the wisest man that ever lived, and by some biblical standards, he might have been like the most sinful biblical writer that ever lived, right? I don't know that we can really settle that contest for sure, but he engaged in some bad stuff. He was a sinner. And this reminds us of a greater truth that God continues to speak through sinful people like the biblical authors and like you and me, right? Like one of the ongoing scandals of this is not just that God would speak through a scandalous messenger like Solomon, but God speaks through you and me. The way the apostle Paul says it is we have this treasure of the gospel in jars of clay. We're broken cracked vessels. And as people see us limping towards Jesus and learning to rely on him instead of relying on ourselves, people more more clearly see Jesus. I believe we see this in Solomon's life as well. Now, he was an official messenger of the Lord, right? He's a king and a sage of Israel, God's official people, right? That he says, hey, I'm going to save the world, and I'm going to pick this puny little people group, Israel, and I'm going to work through them. He clearly says in Deuteronomy 7.7, 7, I'm not working through them because they're so awesome or so wise. I'm working through them so that God uh, can show the world that he's gracious, right? So even what Paul said about the jars of clay thing in the New Testament with Paul, he's already said the same thing in Deuteronomy 7.7. 7. I don't love Israel because they're so lovable. I love them because I want the world to see my grace through them. And so here in Proverbs one one it says he's the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, the king of Israel, right? So he's a spokesman, part of the tribe of Israel. This is how God communicates with us. He communicates through this particular tribe, Old Testament, Israel, New Testament. Now this is a multi-ethnic tribe all over the world called the church. And we're all sinners, right? I don't know about you guys, but I'm a sinner. Actually, I do know about you guys. You're sinners too, Okay. I just know, I don't even know all of you that well, but you're sinners, okay? Sorry to insult you. One more scandal. Um, Thank you. God speaks through broken messengers like you and me, little things like Proverbs, sinful kings like Solomon, and Jesus is the ultimate messenger. Hebrews says, he speaks through many different times, many different ways, many different prophets, many different messengers. In these last days, he speaks to his son, and Jesus was perfect, not a sinner like all the rest of us, and yet still a scandal. Why was Jesus such a scandal? Because Jesus shows us that we can't save ourselves. We'll come back to that in the end, but I want to f- kind of just make a few observations about Solomon and encourage you for further study. I think this will help us understand the Proverbs a little better. You can read about Solomon. One of my favorite stories about Solomon is in Second Chronicles 9, where the queen of Sheba sees all the wisdom of Solomon, and she basically converts. She says, I praise you, I praise your God, I I believe in your God. Man, he's gracious, he's incredible, you have such great wisdom, and you see this pagan queen converting after seeing the wisdom of Solomon. And then we see Jesus saying something in contrast to that in Matthew 12. Jesus says, the queen of the south, this queen of Sheba from 2 Chronicles 9, will rise up at the judgment with this generation, and condemn it. This is Jesus saying, the queen of Sheba is going to rise up and condemn those that didn't listen to Jesus. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus is saying he's, he's in that line of kings, right? We're always told he's the son of David. Solomon was the greatest son of David until Jesus. And Jesus is the ultimate son of King David who is perfect, who doesn't sin like Solomon and embodies this wisdom both in what he writes but also in how he lives. And so we see this lived out in the life of Solomon but also in the life most particularly of Jesus. Um, Ecclesiastes 12 kind of shows us, I believe, where Solomon ended. A lot of scholars disagree about this, so this is kind of, we're entering into my opinion. Um, Some people believe that Solomon just ended as a complete sinner, complete apostate, like left the faith, right? Right? I actually believe Ecclesiastes, another wisdom wisdom book, is his deathbed confession. That's the way I understand it. So we see Proverbs as his beginning wisdom. We start with the fear of the Lord. And then we see Ecclesiastes as his experiencing all kinds of craziness in life, trying everything, and coming back to the Lord. That's how I understand Ecclesiastes. Not all scholars agree with me there, but Ecclesiastes twelve ends this way He says, This is the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. So we see kind of a complete circle. This advice, this call from wisdom that we would obey God in Proverbs, and that we would walk with him and fear God. And that's where we start. And then we see Solomon ending there too. He wandered. He did stupid things. But I believe he's coming back to this in Ecclesiastes 12, where he says, this is the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God, keep his commandments. What's interesting is in Ecclesiastes 12, he says this as well about wisdom in general. As we engage in the exercise of growing in wisdom, Solomon says, the words of the wise are like goads, cattle prods. That means they're going to poke us and prod us towards doing the right thing. They're like goads. They're like cattle prods. He says they're also like nails that are firmly fixed. What does that mean? They, they bring stability. As we learn to walk in wisdom, it's going to bring stability in our life. But Solomon goes on with this warning. Uh, he says, all of these things are... Collected sayings, and they are given by one shepherd. Remember, ultimately, true wisdom comes from Jesus. He's the source of all true wisdom. And he says, my son, this is Ecclesiastes 12, 12. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of the making of many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Beware of anything beyond these. I grabbed a picture of uh, one of the world's great libraries. This is a library in Stockholm huge library, lots of books. Uh, If y'all know me, you know I love books. I love to read broadly. I love to learn. And I think what we see in the life of Solomon is this uh, engagement in the art of learning. He's reading broadly. He's reading from pagans. He's reading God's law. And I think we have great freedom as believers to read things both by non-believers and by believers. Non-believers are made in the image of God and they can observe true things about reality. But we weigh them and we sift them by God's word. And so here, I believe, Solomon is calling us to this exercise of discernment, to this practicing of truth and wisdom, whereby we might read things by other authors, others that maybe don't believe in the Bible and don't believe everything we believe, but we're going to then weigh it with the Supreme Court of Scripture. And he gives us this warning, beware, because in the end, as you engage in this exercise of wisdom, you can confuse these two things that look very similar One is the idolatry of learning, and the other is sitting and learning at Jesus' feet. Those are two different things. What do they have in common? They have in common being a student, being a learner, right? Jesus' disciples, disciple means learner. They were called to learn from Jesus. He was their teacher. We are called to follow Jesus and learn from him. We are to engage in learning. We are to grow in wisdom. But don't confuse that with an idolatry of learning. Because Solomon says it never ends. There's, there's no stop to that. It'll never end. It'll wear you out. It'll beat you up. It'll leave you wanting more. Learn from Jesus. So just beware of that difference and how we can confuse those lines. We begin, can begin to worship learning in our own intelligence. One of the ways I like to say it is this. Um, we can learn a lot about the Bible, but only when we obey, obey the Bible are we actually engaging in biblical wisdom. Um, I, I've studied the Bible for 30 years. I've been teaching it for 25. I know the Bible really well. Probably better than most of you. Probably some of you could beat me in a Bible test, right? I know the Bible really well, but some of you obey the Bible better than me, more consistently than me. And the way that the Bible would speak of that is, is Scripture. The Lord would say, "Those of you that obey the Bible more faithfully than me, you actually know the Bible better than I do. That's true knowledge." I'm getting ahead of myself because we'll we'll hit that more in the next point. But how can we apply wrestling with the scandalous messenger of wisdom? Well, we want to weigh everything by the truth. We say the Bible speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus. So continue to read this book, pray this book, sing this book. That's my big application. Make this book, this canon, this measure of truth, make it a daily part of your life. Read it, study it, meditate on it, learn from it, let yourself be transformed by it. Again, not falling for the idolatry of learning, but allowing the Holy Spirit to change you and make you more like Jesus. If you want to learn more about specifically canon and how we know what got put into the Bible and what was rejected as non-Bible, that whole process is called canon. Uh, canon just means measuring stick. So how do we know like, what's properly in the Bible and what's not? You know, Why did we bind this book together and we left out other books? That whole process is an interesting study. I'd love to talk to you more about that. I could recommend resources if you want to learn more on that subject. But I think the main thing is just that we would listen to the book. Okay, next point is the scandalous challenge of wisdom. The scandalous challenge of wisdom, and this gets back to what I was saying before, that we would actually live it, not just know it. In our modern world, we're obsessed with knowing facts. The Bible scandalously challenges us to be transformed. The Bible calls us to transformation, not merely information. We have more information than ever before. We can Google anything we want, right? We have like all the world's libraries accessible by our uh, second brain that we keep in our pocket. And you can just look things up all the time. We have more information than ever before. Our current generation knows more stuff than anyone ever. And somehow at the same time, we're like the stupidest generation that's ever lived. You know that? We're more anxious. We're more dysfunctional. We can't live off the grid, you know, like we can't do real things, but we know facts. We know all kinds of information. And yet we don't know how to live. Wisdom is is learning to live. It's it's practical learning. It's an important distinction that scholars like to make between proverbs and promises. Have you ever heard that distinction? A promise is something that's absolutely true all the time. Here's a promise. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. If you trust him for forgiveness, he will give you forgiveness. You are set free. You can be reconciled to God. That's a promise. Nothing changes that. No circumstance. No issue in life, right? There's no gray to that. That's an absolute promise. Proverbs sometimes change from circumstances, day-to-day issues, right? They're kind of like living in the gray in between. How do we obey the rules of God when we're not so sure which rule applies, right? like you might come to me for counseling and say, I'm thinking about murdering someone. And I would say, no, don't do it. Okay. Cause I've got a pretty clear rule, a promise on that one. We got the 10 commandments. Don't do it. Right. But there's all kinds of things in life where we don't, we don't have a definite rule. And Proverbs is about helping us to learn in the in-between. Now, to be fair, Proverbs mixes both up, right? Proverbs is full of biblical law and promises as well as just these kind of everyday gray issue things. And so it mixes all that together as we learn to obey God, as we deal with the scandalous challenge of being transformed, not just informed. So verse 2, he starts to explain this. This is what it's for. It's to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. Politically right now, our world is very divided, and there's all kinds of debates about um, justice and equity and righteousness, and how do we define these things? Again, I believe it's okay to read pagan opinions on that, but then who decides? Well, Well, God decides. As we learn the Bible, as we sit at the feet of Jesus, then we'll begin to really understand what justice is, what equity is. We learn that from Scripture. We don't learn that from other sources. We can ask good questions from other sources. You know, there's no problem in reading those things. We don't have to be afraid of other sources, but we measure the truth by God's word. He goes on and says, part of the purpose here, the challenge of wisdom is to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. So a lot of uh, scholars will say, man, Proverbs is aimed at kids, right? Mainly about children learning. He's going to go on and say it's for the advanced as well, but, but it starts. With that first audience of training children to walk in obedience, to learn wisdom, to give, as he says, prudence to the simple. Prudence can be translated also as like shrewdness, like to not, you know, not be duped, not to be naive, but to actually learn how to live in this crazy broken world. So prudence to the simple, also knowledge and discretion to the youth. Um, I grabbed a picture here of a policeman helping a lost child. I think part of the scandalous challenge of wisdom is we have to see ourselves as the lost child. Are you willing to admit the degree to which you're lost and I'm lost? Are we willing to come to God with the open hands of faith and say, I need help. That's saying that God is God and we are not, that he knows the truth and, and we don't, and we need his guidance. We need his wisdom. And so The book of Proverbs is challenging us, again, to be transformed, to learn, and to be guided in our lostness, in our simpleness, in our naivety. He goes on in verse 5 and says, Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. What's he saying there? He's saying it's not just for children, but also for those that are already wise. Many of you have been around the block a few times. Like you've learned some things from life. And guess what? You still have more to learn. Do you know that? We all have more to learn. We all have more ways that we can grow and and be more like Jesus. I was listening to a lecture with my wife in the car yesterday. That's the kind of nerdy thing we do for fun. We listen to lectures in the car. Um, And this one lecture was just talking about culture and different issues and apologetics. And one of the things they said was this priest talking about how All of life is basically a rehearsal for our death. And I thought, wow, I don't think I like that. First time I heard it. But then I was kind of wrestling with it. My wife and I were talking about it. I think, like, I think think that's true though, right? One of the things they were discussing was how all kinds of traumas and difficulties that we go through are just like step-by-step ways in which we lose a little bit of control. And death is the ultimate loss of control. And the question is, are you going to trust the goodness of God and his control? Do you trust him? Is he good? Or are you going to try to fix the world yourself? Now, just to be clear, I don't, I don't think we should be passive. I don't think we should give up control in the sense of, you know, inshallah, whatever, who cares? But I do believe we need to acknowledge the kingship and sovereignty of God. We need to trust him. And so that's part of this process of transformation. We're being changed. We're, we're being grown. Even the wise can increase in learning. Even the one who understands can still obtain guidance. We all have a lot to learn. And then finally, verse 6, to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. Part of what this does is it turns you into a lifelong learner, right? Then, then you begin to be able to understand other proverbs and other riddles, and you begin to grow in your discernment, and grow in your ability to grapple with truth in the world. Another lecture my wife and I were listening to, she had a conference this week, so I was listening to kind of the best of from what she had heard. There's a psychologist named McCurdy, and he talks a lot about uh, the fragility of our youth and how we're not training our kids to be strong, you know, but instead we're just training them to be soft. And one of the things he was talking about is how our culture has kind of changed over the years to no longer even believing that transcendent truth exists. That's, that's a problem that causes some sickness. And as that has happened, we've grown in our thinking that the solution is information, not transformation. So what what's happened more and more is we keep thinking, oh, people need more education. They need more facts. They need more knowledge. But like I said earlier, we don't know how to live. McCurdy went on and said, we have convinced an entire generation that healthy is a feeling. He said, we have no model of what a healthy human actually looks like. We have no standard. The scriptures do. Proverbs will hold up, again, these little models of reality and say, this is what health looks like, and this is what foolishness looks like. To be healthy looks like this. To be not healthy looks like that. But our world says, no, 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 no. There's no external model. It's only yourself. Look at your own heart. Look at your own desires. Get to know your own feelings. That's the measure of health. And that simply does not work in the actual universe we live in. I think we should consider our feelings. Just last week, we were looking at Romans 12. It calls us to be compassionate people, right? We should weep with those who we, we We should rejoice with those who rejoice. We should show sympathy and empathy and compassion and all these things. Jesus modeled it perfectly. But reality is something that exists outside of ourself and our desires. And biblical wisdom, the scandalous challenge of wisdom is that we would be changed we see this in a lot of different ways, but I think ultimately the challenge is that we would look outside of ourselves instead of looking inside of ourself. Carl Truman wrote a book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And he said, we've gotten to a place in culture where there is a premium put on the individual's right to define his or her own existence. The degree to which you've been shaped by culture will determine how much you agree with that or disagree with that. The individual's right to define his or her own existence. We live in a hyper-individualistic age. The scripture challenges us to listen to God and to listen to other wise people like parents and brothers and sisters in Christ and teachers and bosses. Even though they're sinful, even though they mess up still, to listen to them and to learn from them. So number one, we start off by just humbling ourselves and confessing. I mean, I think it's important to make this a prayer between you and God before you can actually change your behavior. (laughs) Lord, I recognize I've been, I've been looking to self. I need to learn from you. I humble myself. I admit I have a lot to learn. Will you teach me, Lord? Will you give me the gift of learning and wisdom? Number two, then we begin to subject every part of our life to, to God's interference. To the challenge of God's wisdom. What does God have to say about your parenting? What does God have to say about your sexual life? What does God have to say about the way that you work? What does God have to say about the way that we live, the way, the way we relate to each other, the way that we listen to each other or don't listen to each other? What does God have to say about these things? God God wants it all. He really wants it all. He's challenging us towards spiritual surrender, towards the challenge of change and transformation. And then finally, I would say, get in a group where you can learn from God's word. Again, we have these signups for small groups today and classes. Uh, We'll have those in the lobby. You can uh, sign up for some new groups. Get in a group where you can learn from the scriptures. You can have the added benefit of other people talking to you about it. As you wrestle with the truth, you're like, I think this is what the truth is telling me. What do you think? Right? And having other friends speak to your life helps you to break out of that trap of, of modern hyper-individualism, where you're the only standard of right and wrong. Actually listening to other people can help you break that down. Listening to God's Word can help you break that down. And then finally praying together. That's one of the things we usually do in our groups. You actually pray for each other. Let me, let me pray for you. You pray for me, and we help each other grow and be challenged by God's Word. The last point that we see is a scandalous fuel of wisdom. This is just going to be kind of scratching the surface on this idea of the fear of the Lord. So the scandalous fuel of wisdom is in verse seven, and it's this fuel that, that drives everything else we're gonna learn in the book of Proverbs. It's the fear of the Lord. And this is a paradoxical part of the Christian life. Um, I think as modern people, it's really hard for us to hear this well. Um, it's often easier for us to hear the fear of the Lord through these other synonyms like awe and reverence. That makes a little more sense to us as modern people. But I think we're going to have to wrestle with, why is it I don't like the term fear of the Lord? What's good about it? Maybe what's, what am I misunderstanding about it? It says in verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. One of the beautiful things about Hebrew poetry is the parallelism. Um, so Hebrew poetry is the most translatable poetry in the world which is a great gift that God has given us. And it's the most translatable poetry in the world because it doesn't matter how it sounds. They rhyme ideas. And so parallelism means throughout Proverbs, throughout Psalms, throughout a lot of the books of the prophecies in in Hebrew, you're gonna get a statement and then you get that next statement said in a slightly different way. So they're rhyming ideas instead of rhyming sounds. Does that make sense? Sometimes they're the same, sometimes they're opposite. So it's kind of like a contrast. This one's a contrast. So this is a kind of opposite parallel. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That's the foundation. That's the fuel of wisdom. And if you're not sure what that means, well, he's going to help you define it by giving you now a parallel or opposite statement. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So if you're not sure if you fear the Lord or not, well, if you despise wisdom and instruction, you don't fear the Lord. That's what it's saying. That, that hurts me. That's like a knife. Ugh. That hurts. That's challenging. What would it look like for us to be really humble and want to learn and not be a fool that despises wisdom and instruction? Again, in this hyper-individualistic age, it's all about how dare you tell me what to think. I'll decide what to think. But the Bible says that's foolishness. Fools despise wisdom and instruction, but we should fear the Lord. One of my favorite uh, kind of pictures of the fear in the Lord of, in this awe and reverence sense is Isaiah 6. Isaiah chapter 6 is where the prophet Isaiah gets a vision of God and God is so holy and God is so overwhelming and so great and so awesome and so glorious that Isaiah just wants to melt. He just wants to fall apart. We see this a lot. When people see God, they just, they just fall apart. They want to run away but we see God continually reaching out to people. That's the good news of the gospel. In our sinfulness, we deserve judgment. And the awesome, fearful power of God is terrifying. And frankly, that's a good place to start with that kind of fear of the Lord, but that's not how we continue in the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord, the true fear of the Lord, we're told in scripture becomes something, it says this in Psalm chapter 2, becomes something that grows into love and joy. So again, this is a paradoxical thing. It's hard to understand. We might start off wanting to run away from God, like Adam and Eve in Genesis, but because of his grace, because of the way he comes after us and forgives us and atones for our sin, that's what happens to Isaiah. The angel is sent to atone for sin. We see a picture of this with Adam and Eve. God covers their nakedness. we see this ultimately in the gospel. The gospel is bad news. We're all sinners and we deserve judgment, but good news. Jesus took our sins upon himself. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Jesus forgave you of your sins. And he rose from the dead, proving that he finished the job, that he has defeated sin and death forever, and that you can have a new confidence in approaching God. And what that does is that that takes away your, your running away fear but there's still a real fear of the Lord, a fear of the Lord, which is a love and a joy in him. I want to give you a couple other uh, insights I think that'll help to make sense of this. Uh, One of them is just the idea of the glory of God, right? The glory of God is his awesomeness. We're called on to reflect his glory. And I think an illustration of this that's helpful is the sun and the moon. I grabbed a um, poorly lit picture of the sun and the moon. uh, a friend, an astronomical friend pointed out that this picture is just wrong, okay? But it's a picture of the earth, the sun, and the moon. And so think about it. Don't study too much the lighting here because lighting's wrong. But think about this. At night, when you have a full moon, you can, you can see pretty well, right? The, a full moon gives pretty good light. You can see where you're walking, right? Um, but does the moon actually have light in and of itself? No. Where does the light come from? The light comes from the sun, right? And so as human beings, we're called on to glorify God. He's the glorious one. He's the awesome one. And we are to reflect his glory. I think that, that, again, gives us maybe a sense of what the fear of the Lord is about. The fear of the Lord is this kind of trembling before him. It's this awareness of his greatness, his brightness, his gloriousness. It's a sense of awe. It's a sense... Of reverence. One of my favorite analogies of this is goosebumps. anybody ever gotten goosebumps before? Um, sometimes you get goosebumps when you're terrified, right? I'm absolutely terrified. That's the running away kind of fear. A monster's going to get me. I've got goosebumps, right? But you can actually have goosebumps when when you have like great joy and delight, ecstasy in something, right? I think the fear of the Lord is like that as well. It's just this incredible awe. Um, a book that was written. I've got a copy of it here by Michael Reeves. Just came out recently. It's called Rejoice and Tremble. I'd recommend this book. It's just a, an entire study on the topic of the fear and the Lord, a fear of the Lord. Rejoice and tremble. And he talks about how in Psalm 2 it says, Those who, who fear the Lord rejoice and tremble, right? It, 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 it's rejoicing. It's a, it's a different kind of thing than the running away kind of fear. That you can only understand if you know God through the incredible grace of Jesus Christ. He says, Come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Through that doorway, we know the true fear of the Lord, the true fear of the Lord that becomes joy. C.S. Lewis talks about pride and humility. And part of knowing the true fear of the Lord is knowing his greatness and knowing that we're small before him, right? So C.S. Lewis says it this way, a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. The fear of the Lord is is recognizing God's above me. He's, He's beyond me. Francis Schaeffer, one of my favorite authors in The God Who Is There, one of my favorite books, Francis Schaeffer says this, a man is faced with God's promises, and then Christian faith means bowing to them twice. First, you need to bow in the realm of being, right? Metaphysically, that is to acknowledge that God is a creature, or that man is a creature before the infinite personal creator who is there. Secondly, he needs to bow in the realm of morals. That is to acknowledge that he has sinned and therefore that he has true guilt before the God who is there. If he has true moral guilt before an infinite God, he has the problem that he is finite, has no way to remove such guilt. This one, what he needs is a non-humanist solution. You hear that? What he's saying is we recognize this guilt and we, we can't fix it. We can't clean it up. Like Isaiah, we're like, I am undone. I've melted before God. I, I can't clean up this mess. I can't fix myself. I need a God who is gracious, who will enter into the mess with me, who will move in to my neighborhood and be close to me and take my sin upon himself. We need a non-humanist solution. Now we are faced with God's propositional promise. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. To what Francis Schaeffer says about bowing before the greatness of God. Well, we need to wrap up here. I think the greatest application that you or I can make of this is bowing relationally and ultimately to God himself. Recognizing you are God, I am not. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that starts most clearly through Jesus who when he was here on earth, he said, there's someone greater than Solomon here. There is ultimate wisdom in Jesus. If you're not sure about all the crazy stuff and all the abuses of religion and all the weird things in the Bible that you don't like, well, you just start with Jesus. Just start with Jesus, who has greater wisdom than Solomon. Read the Gospels. Get to know Jesus himself, and he can help you sort out all the rest of that stuff. As we said at the beginning, scandal is this idea of something that offends us, right? And the more and more we walk with Jesus, the more we obey him the more we're gonna be scandalous to our culture. So scandalous wisdom looks like living out what God tells us is right and wrong and recognizing that as much as we can, we're gonna be kind and gracious to people. We're gonna love people. We're gonna help people to know that we're there for them, but they're gonna often be offended as we obey God instead of obeying our feelings. And as we see this, it reminds us again of Jesus telling us that that he's a scandal and that he's the ultimate tripwire. People are gonna fall over him. Romans 9 says, behold, I'm laying in Zion, a stone of stumbling in a rock of offense. That's a scandal in Greek, a scandal on. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. There's the paradox. The whole world is tripping over Jesus. He's offensive. And yet if we run to Jesus, we will no longer be put to shame. My invitation to you and to me is that we would continue to run to him. And even as he seems scandalous to say, Jesus, I need you. Thank you for coming for me. And please teach me true wisdom. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us and you invite us to yourself. Thank you that you are willing to change us even as we resist. So I pray that you would teach us. Just show us what's the next step, Lord. What's the thing where we're fighting you, where we need to, we need to stop and listen you need to pay attention to who you are, how you've made the world reality itself. Help us, Lord, to look outside of ourselves and to see you, a God who loves ourselves dearly. We thank you for that. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.